0: Some commentaries include verses one to two of chapter six with the material covered at the end of chapter five. So Paul Barnett, for example, in the New International Commentary on the New Testament treats all of chapter five, verse 18, through chapter six, verse two, under the heading, God's appeal through his minister. And there's some sense in that. Listen again to the closing words of the last chapter. Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Closed quote. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21. Now listen to the first verse in chapter six. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So Paul understands himself as an agent of reconciliation, sent out by God and equipped with certain powers and authorities. And now here, Paul is bringing all of those powers and authorities to bear in an appeal for the Corinthians to be reconciled to God and also to himself as their apostle. Indeed, the two realities are interconnected. A person cannot reject the messenger and think himself at peace with the king who sent the messenger. An apostle is a herald. He is sent by God and speaks a message from God. And therefore, to receive him is to receive the one who sent him. Jesus made that point explicitly in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. He said to the apostles, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. All right, so to receive the apostles is to receive Christ is to receive God. There is a chain of commission outwards and a chain of reception backwards. And Paul is eager for the Corinthians to get on the right side of that reality. And so he appeals to them to be reconciled to him by the grace of God. Toward that end, there's an appeal in verses one to two, followed by another defense or apology for his ministry in verses three to 10, followed by a further appeal in verses 11 to 13. In verses 14 to 18, Paul makes an appeal of a different sort, urging the Corinthians to break off from the false prophets and apostles who were leading them astray. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet Possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Now, it's interesting to note here that Paul goes back and forth in terms of addressing the Corinthians as believers and as unbelievers. In these verses, he appeals to them and says, Now is the day of salvation. He is telling them that they're at a crossroads. If they reject the apostolic gospel, if they turn away from a gospel that includes suffering and that allots significant space to frailty and lowliness in favor of a made-up gospel of power, glory, and prosperity, then all will be lost. So turn, come, now is the day of salvation. But then in verse 14, he refers to them as believers and warns them not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So which is it? Does Paul think these people are in or out? And the sense you get is that he sees them as believers, provided they respond as they should, and provided they continue on in the path he has put them on. And to be clear, it isn't that responding to him appropriately will make them saved. It seems rather that if they are saved, they will respond the way they should and they will carry on until the end, whereas the unbelievers among them will likely rebel and wander away into ruin. In that sense, Paul sounds a lot like Jesus who said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me, John 10, 27, and the one who endures to the end will be saved, Matthew 10, 22. So same idea. Paul makes his appeal in verse 2 in words borrowed from Isaiah 49, verse 8. That's an excerpt from the second servant song. In the original context, those words referred to God's deliverance of the people from exile in Babylon. Let's go, the Lord says. Up, pack, move. Today is the day of salvation. I'm opening the doors of the prison and setting the captives free. The return from exile was a picture or an illustration of salvation. And Paul now is identifying his own ministry with that voice in Isaiah 49.8. He is saying, today is the day of salvation. Up, pack, move. In Christ, the Lord has opened the prison doors and set us free. So let's go. Follow me on the road that leads out of Babylon and toward home. And therefore, to reject Paul's invitation is to place oneself outside the sphere of God's saving work. And why would you do that, Paul asks. After all, we've put no obstacle in anyone's way. There is nothing discordant or incongruent in terms of our testimony and ministry. We've shown in every way that we are trustworthy messengers of the Lord. In verses 4 to 10 now, he talks about all the ways that his life and ministry align with and commend the gospel of Jesus Christ. He talks first about all the things he has endured. He mentions nine things in three groupings of three. He talks about afflictions, hardships, and calamities, and then about beatings, imprisonments, and riots, and then lastly about labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Now, you might think it odd that Paul mentions these things as somehow validating and commending his role as an apostle. But remember, an apostle was supposed to proclaim and illustrate the gospel. An apostle was a representative of Christ. And Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Matthew ten twenty four to 25. Paul begins to speak next about his moral integrity. He mentions purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech, and the power of God. Now, putting the Holy Spirit in the middle of a list of virtues seems odd. Colin Cruz provides a useful explanation for that. He says, Paul's inclusion of the Holy Spirit in this list may be understood as an indication that these virtues are fostered and enhanced by the work of the Spirit, or alternatively, that it is a shorthand way of referring to the gifts of the Spirit, Close quote. Paul is a righteous warrior, and he has been armored and outfitted by God. He says that in verse 7. Now, of course, we wonder what kind of weapons Paul is talking about here. The Christian life is a fight, but of course, it's a particular type of fight, And it requires a particular type of weapon. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So we assume he is speaking in a similar way here. With the armor and weapons given to him by God, Paul has been pressing and hacking his way through all manner of tests and trials in order to faithfully execute his commission. He speaks of nine antitheses almost like he's running the gauntlet of praise on the one hand and slander on the other, of obscurity on the one hand and notoriety on the other, all so as to sink his sword, as it were, into the hearts and minds of men and women. And having done that now with respect to the Corinthians, having pressed through all manner of obstacles and misunderstandings so as to clearly present them with a true picture of the real and saving gospel with which he has been entrusted, Paul now invites them to respond appropriately thus he makes his final appeal to them in verses 11 to 13. Our hearts are open to you. Now open your hearts wide to us. Now, I can't help but wonder if this was the text in John Bunyan's mind when he created that memorable scene in Pilgrim's Progress. Do you know the one I mean? Christian was spending some time in the house of Interpreter. And while there, he was shown a variety of visions which were given to explain the nature of the Christian life. One of those visions reflects precisely what we are talking about here. Bunyan tells the story this way. He says, Then the interpreter took Christian to a pleasant place with a beautiful, stately palace. Upon the upper balcony, several people clothed in gold walked. May we go in? Christian asked. The interpreter led him toward the door of the palace. A large group of men stood around the door, wanting to go in, but not having the courage to go further. Off to the side, a man sat at a table with a book and an inkwell, waiting to take the name of any who entered. In the doorway stood many armored men, resolved to hurt any who attempted to enter the palace. A bold man approached the man at the table and said, Write down my name, sir. With that, the bold man drew his sword donned his helmet, and fiercely fought his way through the armed men at the door. Finally, he prevailed and entered the palace. Inside, a pleasant voice sang, Come in, come in, eternal glory you shall win. And the man was clothed in fine garments. I know the meaning of that, said Christian. Well, the Apostle Paul obviously knew the meaning of that as well. The Christian life is a war. It is a battle. We have to hack and slash our way through all kinds of tests and trials in order to fulfill our commission and receive our eternal reward. That's the point. That's the point Paul is making. That's the point Bunyan was making. I've been doing that, Paul says. I've been pressing through dangers and difficulties on every side so as to get this message out to as many people as I possibly can. I did that for you. I've been fighting to get this gospel to you. So what are you going to do with it? That's the question. Now, in verse 14, there is an obvious transition. He's made his appeal. He's explained why he looks so battered and road-weary. And now he says, "'Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, "'for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, "'or what fellowship has light with darkness?' What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among you and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, at first glance, it seems as though Paul is making an odd departure here from the general thrust and flow of his argument. Paul has been appealing to the Corinthians to be reconciled to God, most immediately by being reconciled to him as their apostle, and to the depiction of the cross-shaped gospel that his life embodies, illustrates, and represents. But then now, all of a sudden. We have a seemingly unconnected appeal to live lives of separation from unbelievers. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Murray J. Harris refers to this section as a brief digression, and several other commentaries seem to go along the same way. More liberal commentaries will even wonder if this section represents an interpolation, that is, an insertion of content from another source. Some of them have wondered whether these verses were actually originally part of a different letter that was not preserved in whole, but then some scribe thought that at least this section would be worth preserving, so he made the decision to insert it here. So it was part of some other letter Paul wrote maybe to some other people, but let's just shove it in here. Is that what's going on here? Some scholars, however, do not view this paragraph as in any way discordant with respect to Paul's main theme. In fact, they perceive it as fitting in perfectly. So Mark Seaford, for example, says here, Paul's admonition is not a general statement against association with unbelievers or pagan idolaters, which in the Corinthian context amounts to the same persons. It is specifically directed against his adversaries in Corinth. Closed quote. In essence, Seifert is saying that if you want to understand this as a general statement about discerning engagement with unbelievers, okay, fine, but then how does it fit in with the general flow of Paul's argument? Why would he say that here? But what if it isn't a general statement? What if it is just the next step in Paul's appeal? He's been saying, be reconciled to me and to my apostolic gospel. Now, wouldn't it make sense for him to say, and stop listening to the false gospel of unbelievers? Be reconnected to me and be disconnected from them. If that's what he's saying, then obviously this fits in very well with the flow of the argument. And so the task for us is to figure that out. Is this a general statement about, you know, being discerning in your engagement with unbelievers? Or is this a specific call to unhitch from teachers and leaders who present themselves as Christians, but who are in truth leading us down the garden path? That's the issue. Now, when we zoom out and consider the argument and flow of the Corinthian correspondence as a whole, I think the better argument is for seeing this as a call to disengage with heretical or at least culturally compromised quasi-Christian teachers. Remember, the main issue with the Corinthians was that they wanted to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. In the introductory episode, I quoted Roy Campa and Brian Rosner as saying that many of their faults, so speaking about the Corinthians, many of their faults can be traced to their uncritical acceptance of the attitudes, values, and behaviors of the society in which they lived, close quote. So Paul is calling on them to step out from the culture in order to become the church of Jesus Christ. He's saying, you can't live in Babylon and Jerusalem simultaneously. So if you're serious about being part of the church, then you need to begin to leave behind the foundational assumptions and commitments of your culture. And remembering that helps us better understand the Old Testament citations and allusions that Paul calls upon here. He makes a mash out of a bunch of verses Uh, beginning with a law from Deuteronomy 22.10 and Leviticus 19.19 about not yoking together different animals. And by the way, this is a good example of how Paul was very comfortable extracting principles from Old Testament laws that were originally given in an agricultural setting, and then applying those principles afresh within a New Testament ecclesiastical setting. We've seen him do this before in terms of the not muzzling an ox while it treads out the grain verse. Paul extracted a principle there and then applied it to the remuneration of gospel workers. Well, here he's saying that you can't have people pulling you in different directions. That's just not going to work. So in the metaphor, if the apostle Paul is the ox, then the false teachers are the donkeys. You folks have to choose. Who is leading you? Who's who's influencing you? Who have you hitched your wagon to, right? You need to make a choice, or your church is going to be pulled apart. That's the idea here. But this is no mere matter of choosing between two equally good potential leaders and teachers. Paul makes that very clear by saying, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So these are binary choices. You can follow the culture, or you can follow the Christ. Now Paul says, I speak on behalf of Christ. These other leaders speak, really, on behalf of the culture. You can't follow both. Because they're leading you in two totally different directions. In verse 16, Paul switches to temple imagery. He says, we are the temple of the living God. Now, Paul has made this identification before. Twice in 1 Corinthians, he spoke of the church corporately as the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 18. And the believer individually as the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Here, Paul uses this imagery to set up his next appeal, which comes in the form of an extended mash of citations from Leviticus 26.12, Isaiah 52.11, and then the last bit in verse 18 is from several of the prophets. The middle part from Isaiah 52.11 was originally a call to the priests to gather up the temple implements from where they had been stored in Babylon so as to take them back to Jerusalem as part of the restoration. So by using them here, Paul is calling for religious separation and distinction. We can't do God's work with the world's tools. That's what he's saying. We need to cleanse our tools, our thinking, our methods from contamination with the culture. So take the cup out of Nebuchadnezzar's cupboard and give it a thorough cleansing. Let's re-consecrate that vessel so that it can be used again in the house of the Lord. If we do that... Then the Lord will be with us, he will be near us, he will empower us, and we will prevail. That's the argument. Now, read in context, this final paragraph in chapter 6 feels to me entirely congruent with the flow and trajectory of what Paul's been saying thus far. These people have come to a crossroads. They've been wanting to keep one foot in the culture and one foot in the church, and they find now that they can no longer do so. They're being torn apart. So they must choose between a cross-shaped gospel as taught by the Apostle Paul or a culture-shaped gospel as taught by Paul's opponents. The latter leads to exile and darkness, while the former leads to resurrection and eternal blessing. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first-hand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. IntoTheWord.ca